right, what is going on, guys? I'm your host, Brett Morris. You have tuned into another episode of Recovery Revolution Live. I wanted to let you guys know that I just started a podcast audio only version of this. So it's available, I know, right now on iTunes and Spotify. I'm not sure about the others because there's a whole approval process. But if we do run into another, another, blackout like we had today you can catch up and listen to the audio only version over there so go ahead and subscribe over there and without further ado i'm going to bring on tonight's guest joe Welcome, joe hey how's it going brett good Pleasure man good here. glad to have you on the show man yeah thank you after this this whole facebook uh social media blackout today it is interesting to see uh See how things unfolded, but we're here. So we made it. We made it. I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure if we were going to have a live show tonight or not, but you know, yeah. they fixed it. So here we are. Yes, sir. So just jump in. Yeah. Yeah. Just jump in. Let's, uh, if you wouldn't mind sharing your story, that'd be great. Yeah, for sure. So, um, yeah. Hello, everybody. Um, Joe Conniff, uh, coming at you from Seattle, Washington right now. Um, I give you some backstory about my experience. Um, I am originally from Western Massachusetts, a little place called Aguam. Um, grew up out there. That's um, <clears throat> a little bit north of Hartford, Connecticut, a little east of New York. Grew up in a very, very small town out there, about 30,000 people. This is relatively small. But um, anyways, um, you know, growing up in the late 80s, early 90s, um, Grew up in a household with um, seemingly on the surface, you know, pretty, pretty normal. My parents were together, had a lot of friends, you know, went to public school. Um, kind of behind the doors of my house, though, my mom um, had been in an accident years earlier, um, back in the 70s, uh, late 70s, and sustained a back injury that um, by the time I was seven or eight years old, my mom had been through plenty of surgeries and uh by the time the mid 90s rolled around and what's you know um kind of unfolded as this uh opioid crisis that we've been in for some years now was kind of the start of the over prescribing of um oxycontin oxycodone all that stuff that became you know a household uh medication and um you know in conjunction with that my father worked for um an organized crime family that was based in new york i um grew up kind of irish and french but my dad was a mechanic for this um organized crime faction fixing video poker machines and uh pool tables and barroom equipment so with my mom's back pain and um her kind of emotional and physical unavailability that came with the over medication and you know being pretty pretty heavily prescribed opiates i spent a lot of time with my old man going in and out of bars um spending time around like low-level gangsters um you know, drugs drinking gambling just kind of a, a lot of i was exposed to a lot of things by a young age that um really you know i was very much conditioned by the environment that i was exposed to and um you know that as, as i got older you know a lot of the things that i saw in my household was like internal dilemmas met with external solutions that was like um <clears throat> There was a drink for something there was a pill for something there was a compulsive behavior like gambling for something you know there was um there was some mental health mental illness in my family a lot of alcoholism other substance use disorders um 
you know, a couple of family members have been incarcerated, um, just, you know, abusive relationships, things that just weren't talked about. So by the time I ended up in, in high school and started to experience some, as you'd say, social difficulties, kind of run of the mill, like things that teenagers are exposed to. It's like, you know, hardships with their friends, hardships in relationships. And, um, you know, I felt like there was some betrayals and things that kind of, um, again, kind of commonplace for, you know, 15, 16 year olds, but I didn't really have the emotional wherewithal to deal with those things. And um, so, you know, I had been exposed to like marijuana, drinking, um, you know, a couple of the things that I did on the weekends with other kids, you know, worked as like a busboy at a restaurant, you know, 14, 15 years old and um, kind of just dabbled with stuff. But by the time I was 16 or 17 and there were these kind of like really emotional upheavals that I didn't know how to deal with my relationship with drugs and alcohol kind of changed overnight. It was like all of a sudden, you know, it probably sound familiar it's like drugs and alcohol did for me what I couldn't do for myself. It was like suddenly, you know, it was like smoking marijuana in the morning, um, you know, before school, after school, skipping school, was drinking during weeknights, drinking excessively on the weekends, you know, and prior to that, like I'd even, I even tried cocaine a couple times, you know, never just went all in on it. But when, when I found out that drugs kind of transported me to this place where I felt like I had some ability to control and manage, you know, circumstances in my life, at least make them a little bit more tolerable, ease the blow of discomforting experience. I was like, man, I just, I got to have this all the time. You know, it's like, this is, as long as I can procure the means, the resources to get this, then I'm in a place that like my, my life is is manageable and tolerable i can deal with the idea of like people are going to let me down things are not going to go my way I just as long as i got drugs like things are things are good and you know i made it through high school um had really started to develop though like a pretty um pretty serious cocaine habit by the time i graduated and i uh, graduated in 2001 um <clears throat> spent that summer that first summer right before 9-11, kind of really exploring how much cocaine I could put in my body, um, just how good I could make myself feel. It kind of mimicked these coping mechanisms that I felt I needed in my life, like this idea that I was going to be betrayed by people often. And um, if I could remain in a state of like hypervigilance, which cocaine was great at doing for me, um, you know, I would feel guarded. I would feel safe. And so I kind of, you know, I just um, pursued cocaine as far as I could. And um after 9-11 happened, I'd been kind of working some odd jobs and I mean, my dad was was a little bit older. Um, when I was 18, 19, he was already um, in his early 70s. And there was, you know, he was like, hey, there may be a draft, you know, maybe you should just join the service, get out of here, like you're getting into trouble with, with your drug use. And I kind of took him up on it. So um, shortly after 9-11 happened by that winter, I was trying to get into um, the United States Navy. And um, problem was, is I couldn't pass a UA to get into the service. You know, it was like the night before I was supposed to go into the, the MEPS facility, the mil military entry processing station. You know, I took a drink with some friends and um, knew that I had a UA the next morning. But before I knew it, I was, I was drinking and somebody brought some blowout and it was like, Next thing you know, it was um, first thing in the morning, I had to provide a UA and um, provided a positive UA. 
they told me I wasn't joining the Navy that day. And I kind of floundered around um, Western Massachusetts for another, another three or four months. And then uh, finally, my dad had talked to another recruiter that was kind of, um, he was pretty convinced that he could find another way to get me in. Um, if I was willing to just enter the service, not have a contracted job or anything like that, and then figure out my military occupation once I got to boot camp. And um, so I managed to string together a week or two long enough that I could get in there past the UA. And I very shortly after I was, um, you know, a member of the armed services deployed um, in response to 9-11, I became an aviation ordnance technician building up bombs and missiles um, in the Navy. I was stationed on the USS Harry S. Truman aircraft carrier. I did a couple deployments, but I found um, like, you know, like a lot of things that I've heard around addiction recovery is it's like, no matter where you go, there you are. Right. That's I hadn't yet figured out how to change my relationship to the world without drugs and alcohol. So in my off time, I was drinking and my drinking always led to drug use. And by my third year in the service, after I came back from my second deployment, uh, my dad was dealing with cancer. Um, my alcoholism had just kind of developed into full-blown drinking all the time. And like the precariousness of that always led to cocaine use. And eventually I was discharged. Uh, I was discharged from my cocaine use and I returned home to Massachusetts. Um, just really ashamed, kind of broken. And of course I went back to the same place that I, you know, had a hard time getting into the service from. And so I went right back to my old coping mechanisms. I got right back in with the crowds of people that were using drugs and alcohol back home. Um, before I know it, I was uh, helping a friend run large quantities of cocaine and heroin to the Canadian border, um, doing these drives back and forth with him, you know, making making pretty good money. But more, you know, what counted more than anything was I was just able to stay high all the time. So just like my the pain of my life that. You know, I had barely made it through high school. I'd gotten kicked out of the service. The only thing that provided any kind of relief was drugs. And um, I was trying to get as close to drugs as I could. And that would kind of be my, uh, that would be the hallmark of my existence for the next 10 years or so after I got discharged. Is if you were the dealer, chances are I was trying to sleep on your couch. I was trying to be as close to you and willing to do, you know, anything that, you know, would get me drugs and alcohol. Um, you know, if it was driving you around, if it was, you know, running errands for you, um, all kinds of stuff, you know, it was just, um, that lasted for about, made it about two years back in Western Massachusetts. And, um, the guy that I was, my friend, Pat, that I was doing these, um, doing these runs back and forth from, you know, from Northern Vermont, um, up to the Canadian border, we were getting ready to do a do one of those runs one morning, and um, I found him in an overdose on uh, March seventh, two thousand seven. And um, we had a lot of drugs in the house. We had some firearms, all kinds of paraphernalia. And um, the other guy that I was with woke up, and I realized that Pat wasn't breathing. I didn't really know at the time. I wasn't really fully aware of what was happening. Um, I had some ideas about it, uh, you know, but at the time, it wasn't like people didn't talk talk about Narcan naloxone the way that um most of the you know recovery communities and even you know just the general public have some familiarity with narcan at least in some of the circles i'm in these days and um 
I had to call 911 and in the process trying to get the drugs out of the house, you know, is there before a lot of talk about good Samaritan laws and, and those kind of things around overdose and possession of narcotics and anyways, managed to get the drugs out of the house, tried to do some first responder stuff with Pat. They dispatched two detectives to the house. Turns out they were, we had been under investigation for all the drug running that was happening. They were getting ready to do a bust on us. And I ended up handcuffed to a chair while they searched the house and my friend Pat died um, on the structure by the time they got him out of the house, it had been too late. And, um, it only took about another month and a half before I was trying to run myself out of Massachusetts. You know, I was like, I gotta, I gotta do the geographical change. I gotta figure something out. Um, in that was just the, the, the loss of my friend coming face to face with, with death and feeling so powerless about it, but still only wanting to turn to drugs as, the only refuge, the only reliable sense of relief that I could get, um, you know, kind of left me at odds with everybody in my family that was still living in Massachusetts. My folks had since retired to California like a year prior. Um, most of my family knew, you know, like, man, this guy's just, you know, he, he can't finish his career in the Navy. He's hanging out with these guys that are dying because of overdose. Like I just wasn't really welcome to a lot of places. And um, I got in touch with another guy that I had been in the service with and um he said, man, why don't you come out to Colorado? You know, he said, come on out here, get a fresh start. And um, I kind of just jumped the next plane that I could. I got out there and started kind of building up a decent, you know, compared to where I was at, I started building a decent existence for myself there. I got a job driving, uh, driving trucks, delivering mattresses. Saw almost all of the state of Colorado inside of uh, four or five months. And, you know, is struck with the beauty of being in this new place of course very soon i was like you know well where do i go when i go look for community is you know i'm gonna go to the bar you know because it's chances are i'm gonna find people that are not knowingly you know i think subconsciously it's like yeah you know there's people there that might know where there's drugs they're dealing with life's difficulties the same way that i am and um before long i was wrapped up in a relationship with a with a bartender this woman that was there and we were selling Coke and um, picked up a DUI that I just managed to resolve um, within the last year. That's how long I ran from stuff. And I've been in recovery for six and a half years now, um, which I'll get to. But, um, you know, some of the destruction was so extensive. That's how long it took to, to try to clear some of that wreckage away. And so before before long and having that DUI, I was kind of like, all right, like what's, what's next? Like, where can I go next? I got to keep running from my issues. They're mounting kind of like catch me if you can. And I, I ended up in Wyoming for a period of time and I was up in the Northeast corner up in this little place called Newcastle, like 300, uh, 300 some odd people, or it was like 3000 people in this small town. And, um, of course I managed to find the ones that were into meth and cocaine and started running drugs back and forth from Denver up there. And um, I ended up meeting a woman there and um, she had, um, she grew up in Seattle. Her father owned the place that I was working at and, um, you know, kind of had this relationship where all these external components were going to save my life. The drugs are going to save my life. Relationships are going to save my life. Somebody else, anything but me, anything but the idea of higher powers, anything, anything, you know, like, but this stuff is going to, is going to resolve my issues. And um, so I chased that relationship back to the Pacific Northwest where I am now. And, um, you know, just kind of the same similar circumstances. I got to the Pacific Northwest, got employed, landed a good job, you know, produce wholesaling, doing all this stuff. 
and then I met the people that do the things that I do. And um, inside of about two and a half years, um, we managed to get pregnant, um, have a miscarriage, got pregnant again, and <clears throat> we're pretty excited. This idea of having uh, having a daughter on the way and terrible part about this is as much as I had these aspirations to be a, to be a parent, to be a good partner, I couldn't leave drugs and alcohol behind. They were just too much of my life to, even though I had this nice road shaping up in front of me, that was not going to be enough to curb my appeal for drugs and alcohol, curb my addiction. And um, <clears throat> by late 2014, early 2014, my um my alcohol use um which was out in the open my cocaine use was kind of you know behind the scenes a little bit i spent a lot of time on the road had a disagreement with my spouse some push pull with the door and slammed her three of her fingers inside of the door and, and broke part of her hand and um caught a domestic violence charge and um had to move out of the house didn't get to see my daughter anymore she was about two years old at the time and um i found my way you know living in my work van outside of the bars that i hung out at and finally ended up shacking up with some guys that let me stay with them and what they were into was heroin and you know that was the tragedy of my life at that time how much pain i was in the only thing that was giving me any relief like cocaine wasn't working anymore heroin uh, excuse me alcohol wasn't working Heroin was like, this is, this is the stuff that works. Like, and, you know, after losing my friend, Pat, all the things that I had gone through around that, losing other friends in the opioid crisis, watching my mother with prescription opioids for years, even to this day, um, all of that, it still wasn't enough in that moment because what it offered me was the relief that drugs and alcohol had promised early on. And this is, this is where I was at with it. And, um, I chased that as far as I could. And um, I ended up living up in motels off of Route 99 in uh, <clears throat> North Seattle. You know, what people would consider shooting galleries. I've been robbed at gunpoint. Um, been around all kinds of folks in the sex trade, offering protection to dealers just to be around them down on the block so I could get access to dope. And eventually ended up sleeping in Post Alley down in uh, down behind Pike Place Market in Seattle for um, four or five months, and then finally caught a charge that um, for doing uh, delivery of heroin for um, <clears throat> selling to support my habit in downtown Seattle. There was a big sting in uh, the winter months of 2015, and they finally came came downtown to close in on everybody there was about 180 dealers that were kind of surviving and living out of doors not everybody lived out there but a lot of us that were kind of living in the streets and selling to support our habits and i picked up a couple of charges that landed me in a drug diversion court and um so in may 2015 um after being arraigned in drug court and led out to the community with a promise that i would come back in on monday morning i ran on warrant made it a week got picked up in uh, in this park in between the freeways of seattle down by downtown and on i-5 and got picked up by some homeland security guy that was wandering around this federal park doing some kind of some kind of work there and saw me saw me getting well and brought me back in on the warrant and i ended up doing 120 days in custody um but got access to um inpatient well outpatient style treatment while i was in custody 
And that kind of gave me this jump start. Like it was the first I was I was in there with all these other guys that I had been out the streets with, probably 40 or 50 other guys that got picked up in that sting operation. And um, we were all in there together. And at the time I was about 32 years old. I happened to be one of the older guys um, out of that community that were in there. And there were two or three other guys that were a little bit further ahead of me in the programming, waiting to to do this in custody treatment programming and then come out to the community, to drug diversion court, to the housing services that were provided to the treatment services. These guys are a little bit further along and they're like, look, man, like if you're really, if you're tired of this, if you're really serious about this, you got to come to these meetings that are happening a couple nights a week in here. You know, you got to take this treatment stuff seriously, man. Otherwise it's, you know, it was going to be going to, uh, you know, one of the state locations and probably doing two to three years. That's what I was looking at at a, at a minimum. I, the uh, possession of crack cocaine, um, delivery of heroin. And then I had these, um, I had these warrants around that domestic violence charge too. So I had just like, I had these mounting things that if I can't get this right, all I'm going to do is get this, this break in prison. And that's probably not going to give me any tools. And so when I was in custody, I came across some Buddhist literature, you know, I had like a 12 step book. I had the Bible and all these things. And I grew up in, in, in a Christian background um, but I had difficulty with concepts of higher power um, around my mother's back pain, around all these like other pain and suffering that I saw in my life that I had this idea that, you know, a God or a higher power should be relieving these things. And I found this, you know, this literature on meditation and mindfulness. And um, that really kind of, you know, in conjunction with the idea of 12 step programming, with the other things that I was hearing in the treatment groups is I learned to start to sit in my own skin. I learned, you know, start meditating five or 10 minutes a day. I found a book on yoga. I started doing yoga practices. I started trying to find things that helped me inhabit this body that for so long I had tried to try to just run from. And so um, I started producing this kind of daily regimen of, you know, weightlifting. I became a trustee, um, doing these physical workouts, hanging out with people that were actually interested in bettering themselves, that weren't talking about how they're going to come back out to the community and do their, you know, their um, ducking and diving and, you know, drugging and running a little bit better and not get caught this time. I was like, man, I can't do that anymore. That last year that I was out there, I had about seven arrests inside of a year. And I was just like, this is, I can't do any more of this. And so, um, you know, I got through my, my in custody treatment phase and I had to wait for, for work release. But around that time is um, having been a veteran, even though I lost a lot of my benefits because of my discharge, here in Seattle and King County and Washington state, there was actually some acknowledgement that like, look, as long as you've done some service, you know, been in a combat zone, like we're, we're willing to help you out. And so I got to finish up in this incarcerated veterans program that was willing to give me some shelter housing when I exited that and I was being released to drug court services in the community. And um, during that time, you know, I started doing everything that was suggested. It was like, get a sponsor, work the steps, I did the things around the 12 step rooms because those were the groups that were accessible. I also turned around and found <clears throat> that there was meditation and yoga practice in the community at the same time. And so, you know, for, <clears throat> for this idea that I had used all this buffet of substances, I liked all these drugs and alcohol constantly four or five different things at once. I'm like, man, I'm going to do this whole buffet of recovery. Like there's nothing wrong with, it. I don't need to just lock into one thing you know, and these ideas that take what you need, leave the rest at the door, you know. So I, I went and sat myself up in these recovery fellowship halls, you know, two, three times a day. I went to the yoga practices. I did the meditations. I went to my court hearings. 
I hung out with people in recovery. You know, this idea people told me the five people you spend the most time with are the people you become. And I was like, well, that makes sense. You know, like I didn't become a heroin addict until I started spending time with people who were using heroin. Like I started really just seeing things really black and white. If I spend time with people in recovery, like I'm not going to have a choice, but to kind of pick up some of this recovery business. And, um, you know, so I went ripping and running through drug diversion court sanction free inside of a year. And, um, during that time, I got the no contact order lifted with my, my daughter's mother. We started a small, uh, small food business in Seattle. We were selling at farmer's markets. Um, I got, uh, offered uh, yoga training for extremely low cost. And so I really kind of built up all of these spiritual tools. I went through the steps, um, with a sponsor as fast as I could, but as thorough as I could made amends. And then the month after I graduated drug court, my father passed away. It was, um, 2016. I lost my best friend the month later. Um, and in that didn't find it necessary to use. And, um, what I did find is that I stayed close to the solution, the stuff that people told me, like, if it ain't broken, don't fix it. So, you know, when I left drug diversion court, I still had, um, I still had a service position as a, as a secretary for back to basics meeting at Cherry Fellowship Hall in Seattle, really awesome fellowship hall up in the, the central district in the heart of Seattle. That was kind of like, that's the place I got sober, um, you know, doing a little bit of yoga teaching and meditation practice. And um, <clears throat> so I had stayed close to a drug diversion court because it was the one, it was the off ramp from the system that really gave me my life back. It helped resolve some of my other criminal legal matters too, um, with the domestic violence charges. And, um, about six months after I graduated drug court, I was offering to be of service to other people that were still in the drug court program. And then, uh, the drug court program in King County at the time, there was about 300 active participants at any given time we're right here in Seattle. And so I found that there's probably, some opportunity for me to share my experience, what it was like to go through the program, come in off of the streets, out of homelessness, and um, help carry somebody else through just with my experience, you know, in times that they're having difficulty. And the uh, treatment program manager at the time was like, man, there's actually this um, position opening up, you know, it's contracted through one of the treatment agencies, but, you know, maybe you'd think about applying and becoming a resource specialist. And, you know, I was like somebody, my small business was taking off. And as far as I was concerned, my dreams were coming true. Like I was sober. I got my, I'm in my daughter's life. I'm with, uh, you know, her mother again. I started this business that I for years had wanted. And um, all of a sudden this idea of like actually, you know, recovery work becoming like my sole vocation in life was like, wait, like I kind of really dig this. And, you know, on this, if I can want to be as close to the drugs and alcohol as I could for, you know, the last 16 years prior to that, like, let me get as close as I can to this recovery stuff. Like, and I was like, this is probably the best insurance policy I can possibly get myself connected to. And within six months of graduating drug court, I was hired on as a resource case manager. And um, a couple months later, I put in to be a Washington state certified peer counselor, go for that training. Um, I went through becoming a CCAR uh, certified recovery coach or recovery coach credential. I became a, a mindfulness teacher in 2019 um, I, and 2020, I was getting ready to leave drug diversion court because, um, I was working for a nonprofit. And at the time my, um, program manager made the run at making my position, a government, a county position there. 
um, something which I was just kind of was really what I wanted because I was like, man, I got kicked out of government employment 16 years prior or not 16 years prior, about 10 years prior. But um, I never thought I'd be working for the government again. And that turned out to become my reality um, back in February of 2020. And, um, you know, so at this point, you know, the last year and a half has been um, <clears throat> probably some of the most productive in my recovery. Um, had to adapt to offering peer support services to the people that I work with in drug court. I facilitate um, daily recovery support groups for people in the program. I teach mindfulness a couple days a week to them, do grief and loss support. Um, and then I had spent the last three years um, being involved, you know, in all these, these different things like legislative forums. Um, I got to go to mobilize recovery back in 2019, see a lot of pictures from folks in our national recovery community going out there. It was awesome. I got to go be part of the inaugural um, conference that went down. And then, um, you know, a lot of that stuff inspired me to really write about my journey. People are asking me to share about it. I'm like, man, I got to have this someplace that I can point people to. And so in December, 2020, I finally, um, I published my memoir, Causes and Conditions, uh, A Life Experience in Addiction and Recovery. Um, I actually got a copy here. Um, this is available on Amazon, um, Barnes and Noble online. I finally was like, I just wanted something out there that I could point people to, um, you know, books changed my life. Recovery stories changed my life when I was in custody. I read Noah Levine's Dharma Punks when I was in there. I read other short um, memoirs, you know, folks of the Christian recovery, other things. And it was people's inspiring stories and one-liners and things like that that saved me at some of the most difficult times when I didn't have access to community. Those times when I wasn't able to make it to a meeting for whatever reason, it was other people's stories. And so, you know, kind of the the idea of what would be the hallmark of, you know, success and recovery is that if I could put my story out there somewhere, somebody could tangibly put their hand on it. And um, that was the only mark of success I ever had for the book was if one person tells me it helps them and you know, the, the area where I grew up in Western Massachusetts has just been ravaged, um, as most of the country has, and especially in rural communities, by um, opioids and then everything else that's ensued with, with addiction to follow with the epidemics. And um, I just had people reach out to me from back home. It's like, man, this is so fascinating. Like, I remember you growing up. I had no idea what you went through. And, you know, the book was just a way to – it was probably the most thorough inventory I've ever written. You know, I've done some four steps. I, I work um, – you know, for the most part, the last few years, I've, I've worked the Refuge Recovery Buddhist program. I've sat 10-day silent meditation retreats to deepen my practice. Most of my recovery is really more mindfulness-based focus. Um, but it's just um, it's just this desire to share all these different things that worked. And um, yeah, putting, putting a book out, writing about that, connecting with other advocates, staying so plugged into this has been what's sparked my recovery day after day after day and um being close to the community here being in positions to be able to help advocate for change in my community the things that i see that need to happen the idea of um you know i came from a very hard abstinence focused background i thought that drug court was the best thing in the world i thought that abstinence only recovery was the only thing that really mattered that it was the gold standard and i started to realize that my thinking also wasn't wasn't helping other folks get access to any kind of freedom, any kind of liberation. I needed to open my mind. 
And, um, you know, so it put me in places where I started to explore other recovery programs. It started to connect with what other advocates were doing in other areas. And um, with that, you know, expanded my awareness to hear about stuff in like the 12 steps of, you know, growing and understanding and effectiveness and, you know, being in spaces where conversations that weren't just co-signing my beliefs and the things that I found were consistent with, with my recovery and my experience is learning to embrace other things so that like there is some sort of path out there's some way to help everybody no matter where they're at behavioral health crisis mental illness substance use disorder and so you know where i'm at at this point in my recovery is i'm, I'm putting together a second book right now um you know looking at other ways to you know other positions that are available within you know my local community to um maybe advocate for more change, maybe bring my lived experience to the higher level, you know, um, you know, implement new programs uh, on some task forces about overdose emergency, um, you know, people just access to health, just, you know, just access to care, just things that so many people are like, there's so much stigma um, around behavioral health issues that it's just such a, um, a barrier to services for people. And so finding other ways to advocate for the changes in my community that put my lived experience at the table um, so that there's an opportunity for change to happen by some of us that have actually been through it. So, um, and, you know, one of the other things I'll add is in this last year too, is I've still had the opportunity to work on some stuff in my recovery. I mentioned catching a DUI in Colorado in 2008. And um, this journey continues. Like I didn't have the finances for a long time to, spend five, six grand on an out-of-state DUI and going through that. And, um, you know, fortunately, because of the pandemic, I never had to take a trip to Colorado. The work that I do in drug court and uh, having written a book, got to go to the got to go to the, the judge's bench and got to advocate, you know, my attorney got to advocate for the lowest amount of things. I had to do 10 days of, of house arrest, you know, six and a half, over six and a half years sober. And, um, you know, part of it is, I got to do that, you know, it's, um, I want to clean up the wreckage, you know, want to have that experience to tell other people that, you know, gets, doesn't always get easier. It gets different. And at times it does, it's progress, not perfection. You know, there's, there's, it's a long road ahead for some folks. And, and I've been really fortunate to say in my book, I'm truly fortunate to have lived, uh, two lives in one lifetime. And I got to thank drugs and alcohol for that. I've seen, I've seen the, the best of things and the worst of things. So really a pleasure to be here. With everybody tonight happy to take any questions if there's anything i missed out i'm very much an open book having put a book about my life out there um appreciate any everybody who's tuned in and who get a chance to to see this yeah thank you for sharing that story man that was that was absolutely incredible and about five minutes into the into the episode we got comments started coming in because we were having some some facebook difficulties but it looks like they're uh they're up now. So that's awesome. So yeah, if anybody has any questions for Joe, please, uh, please put those in the comments and uh, we can, I'll read those out for everybody to, and put them on the screen as well. I like what, I like what Karen said up here a couple minutes ago. She said it's called being sober dosed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Time, time and time again, that's been, there's there's these you know these marks i mean people other people call them god shots coincidences um you know like i said is i'm not much i'm not one much for 
for higher power stuff personally, but I, I have a, you know, how that shows up for me in a mindfulness based recovery practices. Um, I live by certain principles, you know, certain um, guidelines, um, you know, in Buddhism, it's called the eightfold path and it's, it makes it so that, you know, living by those principles, like we do, like we do in 12 step programs or, you know, any type of other spiritual living is um, it makes for me, it makes my mind a better place to have to operate from. It makes it an easier place for me to sit with day after day. And in that, when I pursue that is like the, you know, the, the beauty of life continues to show up, the opportunities continue to arise and it's not always easy, you know, but it's, um, this ability to actually my relationship with the world is understanding that there's going to be things that that are unsatisfactory about it. Like there's nothing promising me a pain-free existence. That's been important to understand. It's, it's like just life at times is unsatisfactory. Um, you know, drugs and alcohol can change that briefly. Doesn't last. It's just there's nothing wrong with me. Doesn't mean I'm a bad addict. I think I was I was really good at it for a while. Like I tried hard as hell to stay on one 24-7. It's just impossible. And you know, I have a tendency to take things personally. That's part of the human condition. And in that, that causes me some trouble. And, um, at other times, you know, it's just, um, things are just the, the only constant is the nature of change. And so, you know, when I, when I see those three things, you know, in the, in the, the way that I practice, that's called the, the three marks of existence is, um, I'm here in this human form. I'm going to be subjected to those things. And if I can understand that that's happening, I'll find the ability to move along with life. And in that is happiness is not something that that I get and get to hold on to. It's something that I find. It's something I get to be along the way, learning to live kind of a little bit more in harmony with, with the world in the way that I had been. Nice. Nice. We got one question from Ian that came in a minute ago. Let me scroll up here and find it. Um, where did it go? Now I'm not seeing. Oh, there it is. Uh, he said, when or what triggered you finally to get clean and sober? Any events? Hmm. That's a really good question. Um, thanks, Ian. I think, you know, because I mentioned I had been arrested about seven times that last year. Um, there was one in particular, and I talk about this in my book. I have a, a friend that I knew from the street, somebody that I used with. And it was when I was, um, I had gotten picked back up on the warrant for drug court. Like I'd already been arraigned in drug court. I knew that was on the table. But then they picked me up on the warrant and they let me sit for about two weeks. And I was like, man, I can't keep doing this. Like, sure. I think many folks have been like, I can't continue to do this. And then we get released. We do things. And we go back out. We do it. Right. Like we do it again anyway. And I was waiting in the bullpen one day, you know, where the attorneys come in kind of disclose all the paperwork and those things. And um, this guy, all of a sudden I heard somebody call me by my nickname out on the street. And I looked over and I kind of, kind of recognized him, but didn't. And and finally, he, he let me know who he was and he had put on some weight. You know, he had been in he caught some federal charges and he was waiting to go into drug court. And, uh, you know, during that time, he had been sober and he put some weight on and started working out, was feeling healthy. And um, he was somebody that I knew he used the way that I did. He ran around the streets the way that I did. And this dude was sober and he was um, he was in drug diversion court. He had like I said, he had waited to get in, but he was a little he was one of those guys who was a little bit ahead of me. And he just looked at me and he's like, man, you look like you're getting your ass kicked out there. And I was like, yeah, man, like I am. I'm, you know, and I can't explain why I continue to do it. And he's like, you gotta, 
you know, man, he's like, you don't have to do this. You can take your, you know, your charges and, and go mainstream, go to prison, or you can try this drug court thing, man. Hey, I'm down at the facility in the South end. You know, if you go in that courtroom and say, yes, just say you want to take drug court, you want to take it for a spin. They'll send you down there in two days. They'll have you roll it up here downtown. You'll go down to that in custody treatment program. I'm a trustee. He's like, let me, let me feed you. Let me, you know, get in this workout regimen. We hit the meetings, you know, and then if you don't like it, you know, that whole idea, like your misery will be refunded. He was like, you could take your case mainstream at any time, you know, and they'll release you and you can go run again if you want, you know, until they pick you up. And I just, I remember that, that experience was so profound because I was just kind of chewing on it. And I went into the courtroom and without even thinking about it, they told me what was available to me. They said, you can go to the in-custody treatment program or you can take it mainstream and go to prison. And um, I just kind of, I heard my friend, his name, we call him Jolly. And I remember Jolly's words and he's, you know, he's like, man, just do it. And I just said, okay, I'll take drug court. Like send me to the in-custody treatment program. I don't care. I'll do the 120 days, whatever. I don't even know what's on the other side of that. I'll do it. And it was like, it all happened so fast. I was like, what did I just agree to? I don't know what's on the other side of this. Nothing. I just, you know, this idea of just attached to doing things my way. I just let go. You know, people would say, let go, let God. I just let go. And um, I went back to the bullpen. He was gone. Like, it was like seeing a ghost. I was like, who, why did I run into him? Like, why did this happen today? Like, mm. and then a week later, I was down in, down in the regional justice center in Kent. And I was walking through the doors and there he was. He was like, man, here's the table. Here's where we're hanging out. Like kind of just like stick with the winners thing. These are the dudes doing the recovery business. Those guys over there, they've got drugs coming into the unit. You want to make this thing work. You want to give yourself a fair shake. You got to do this. And I, I gotta say, I credit, I credit him from with that conversation, you know, to it, now the long way around to respond to Ian is it was that moment. It was the peer perspective. That's why I value peer work so much as he's not a peer counselor by any means. It was just in that moment, he said something, he had a message that carried depth and weight. And in that moment, it was what I needed to hear. And it was what I needed to see. Cause I'm like, man, I know how this guy runs. Like if this is working for him man, there's a chance this thing can work with me. And, um, to this day, he's still in recovery. We don't talk that often. He's, he's got good things going for him though. But it, it was that, it was that moment in time that really, really did it. And Ian responded there in the comments and he said, I did 10 years and still couldn't stay clean. I ran the game from the inside. Finally, after finding my best friend overdosed from fentanyl and suffering with PTSD, I got help. I was next to die, not ready to die high. Thank you for your knowledge and wisdom, Joe. Ian, thanks for, thanks for sharing that out here. And then, uh, you know, my, my condolences for that, that part of your experience. And it's, Man, the, the grief is, you know, the, I think the grief is one of the things, um, you know, there's like the survivor's guilt I hear about in a time where some of us are getting this and some of us aren't. And I, and I, I hear things like, um, you know, some of us have to, you know, have to die for some of us to live. And I, I got to say, like, I, I, I can't stand that statement because I think a lot of it has to do with some of our drug policy. I think some of us will die and some of us will live. Um but it's, I think some of this is really about changing the narratives. It's like, man, it's, um, mm. and it's hard that, that grief of like, um, you know, making it out of this when our friends have, or somebody were having a return to use the recurrence of use and, and it being that one time that the tolerance isn't there and, you know, and we're losing people. And I think grief was one of the things that kept me out there. 
I carried that weight of losing Pat for years. You know, like I got loaded behind that every day. Like I got loaded behind all the other losses for so long. And grief shows up a lot of different ways. And it's one of the things I've I've worked the most with in my recovery is that um I even grieve my life as an addict. I mean, like it was hard to make the transition from addiction to recovery. Like drugs was that was a thing I relied on for a long time. It's hear people like Gabor Mate say, like, man, it's my best attempt to solve a problem. And it and it was. It worked shortly, you know. And um, so it was only, I think as he says, it's only misguided in the long term because on the front end it does work. And so it's these cycles, you know, that that I ended up, and I'm sure some other folks can probably have that experience, but that's what it was like for me. And it was, you know, the minute I took a drink, I thought it was relieving the grief, but then I kind of ended up ruminating on it. And it wasn't until I learned to deal with with loss and process, you know, the childhood that I thought I wanted, the relationships that I thought I deserved, the jobs that I thought I wanted, but didn't get like, you know, I had constructed ideas about what my life would have been. I had to grieve the fact that I threw away my military career. I had envisioned myself doing 20 years, you know, in the Navy. And um, I realized that a lot of my difficulties were around my inability to let go of things that I had these ideas I constructed about who I was going to be. And before I knew it, I was 32 and I was, you know, I was a heroin addict in custody. <laughs> and I was like, this is not what I had in the, this is not in the cards the way I was looking at things, but man, years went by. And so I think that's been the most valuable work that I've had to do is, is learning to live with loss, you know, most likely people, but there's a lot of things that um, I've tried to build up that just didn't come out the way that I wanted to. And, and I wrestled the world into a way that I would try to get those things to come to fruition. Ian just put another comment on there. And he said, now that I'm straight, my other friend just committed suicide and I'm learning on a daily basis. The world outside doesn't slow down. Learning how to cope with it is all learning, learning to cope with it all is my blessings. Thanks again, Joe man yeah it's yeah and Ian, it's yeah the loss the loss out there is it's it's very real right now you know and it's um i think i think around these kind of things too is you know death and loss is it's an injustice you know it's especially when, when um it comes to things like drug policy the prescription opioid crisis there's a lot of injustice associated with this and so i think anger is a, a really natural response right is it's um you know, and, and anger becomes a great motivator for social change, you know, but it's like trying to trying to harness that, you know, to this place where it doesn't, for me, it doesn't consume me. It, you know, I can, you can use it to motivate staying on this course and making, you know, recovery in whatever capacity or reality for people. But it's hard, you know, when the, the blows keep coming, it's like at three overdoses um, inside of eight days two weeks ago. And uh, one of them was a kid that I grew up with that had just, you know, put together a couple of years in recovery, got his daughter back, had a recurrence of use, died just like that. And then two clients that um, had one of them who had come through the program and graduated, relapsed, passed away. And another one that I, um, that didn't complete the program, um, went back out to the streets and uh, was on the overdose bulletin from the medical examiner. And it was like, that was somebody that I had survived in the streets with somebody who, you know, when I, when nobody was doing anything else for me and my family, like, I understand why, like, this was a guy that was sharing blankets with me and things like that. When I had nothing else in the street, I mean, the people that I, that had nothing that were strung out and stuff like me were probably some of the most generous people I'd ever met in my life. And that's what made some of those losses even harder is being out there surviving with people 
that aren't getting this opportunity that I did, you know, and it's, um, those are those realities, you know, it's, um, it's hard. It's really hard. Yeah. Ian said my condolences brother. And a few minutes, yeah. And a few minutes ago, he said, my acceptance has really helped. Mm, Acceptance. Yeah. That's another, that's another one that for me, I've had to, I've had to, um, any, by no means am I, trying to talk at you. I like some of the, the things that you're, that you're bringing up, but acceptance was something that for a long time is I had a difficult relationship with, right? Like this, uh, you know, hear things and like in the, in the 12 seven rooms, like acceptance is the key to all my problems. I felt like for me for a while, I felt like, um, and this is my own, you know, mis misinterpretation of things is acceptance felt like me that I was like relinquishing, you know, the opportunity for, for positive action about stuff. And it was like, I found, I explored acceptance a little bit is had nothing to do with that. It was like just letting things be as they are, accepting it for how it shows up. And then from there, being able to figure out how to take skillful, you know, action rooted in wisdom of my experience. I don't make the, the same chuckleheaded decisions I used to so that I'm doing things that are not rooted in, in selfishness. And it's really been about, you know, a lot of these exploring these principles and these ideas around recovery to the place that I, you know, to the, to the degree that I explore drugs and alcohol, like, let me really get down and dirty with some of these, these one-liners with some of these principles and really explore these because after a while it was like, I, I found disagreements with, you know, some of the dogmatic aspects of a lot of recovery programs. And I'm like, but there's a lot to take away that I can put to use in my life and still, you know, keep the wheels turning. And, you know, and it is, is it's like this, um, the nature of change is, you know, having to operate in a, in a pandemic world and culture right now is, is you know, it's like the, um, the way we engage recovery is pretty radical these days. It's like widespread, this accessibility to it everywhere. But yet like some of these other foundational components of fellowship and things that used to happen in person that were some of the primary drivers for how I managed to stay sober and build community, I'm like, what is it like to find recovery in a, in a pandemic world, you know, like in places where you can't be in those spaces together, you know, due to either whether city or county or government ordinances and those things at times. It's it's wild. Yeah, it is for sure. There's a comment that uh, Karen made that I really liked. It says, uh, every day is new and truth is it starts with us individually to change and mold into becoming the best us possible by turning our pain into power, our lessons into blessings and progressively keep moving forward, loving ourselves and each other. Yes. I've got my, my loving kindness shirt on right now. I forgot which way my, my shirt is, but um, the mirror image of this. And yeah, I think it's, that's such a loving kindness. I think it's so, so important. So important, right? Like when we learn to love ourselves is when recovery begins. Right. And in that, you know, I found ways to learn to love others. You know, I was trying to control the world around me. I wanted people to do things certain ways. That was all part of my addiction, right? It was just kind of loving kindness. Now it's, um, you know, it's a big foundation in the mindfulness practices that I do. It's it's considered, it's called meta in the Buddhist practices. And um, yeah, it's just one of those things that bringing it to all of our experiences, right? Even to like how things are unfolding in the world, for me right now is bringing a kind, generous, loving, kind curiosity to what's happening, right? That's um, this kind of coming at things non-judgmentally. And if I'm going to come at it with anything, come at it with love, come at it with kindness. I've come at it with 
anger and disdain and trying to manipulate things. Man, I tried that way for a long time. Didn't work out well. Then we got a comment. I think it's from JR. It's somebody that's on the Recovery Revolution page, one of the admins. He said, Joe, would it be okay to add your book to our shop? He's looking to add more sober authors to the shop and promote their books. Yeah, absolutely. Let me know if there's uh, if there's anything I can or need to do to assist that process. Um, ha- yeah, happy to happy to do that. And I appreciate that opportunity too. Thank you. Yeah, it looks like he just needs a Amazon link. Oh yeah, yeah. I can throw. I'll, I'll send that. Uh, I'll send that over. Whatever the best way is after uh, after this for sure. And then Karen said, "You can't control others, but you and yourself alone can." can and do control how you react and cope to one's actions that's yeah that's real talk right there yeah ian wants to know if after six years of sobriety are there any temptations it's a good question is um you know there's there's places in town that i traverse you know, as part of my, my daily living and as part of my, part of my work that, you know, I, I, I don't want to, I wouldn't say temptations, but man, there's, you know, there's some walks down memory lane that happen from time to time. You know, it's um really hasn't been about the drugs and alcohol for a long time, but it's, it's looking now at there's temptations to act out on behaviors that lead me to, to difficult places that have led me to drug use in the past. And that's part of like my mindfulness work is really like drugs and alcohol were a symptom of all the other issues that I was experiencing. And so looking at, you know, how I work with my anger, how I work with my grief, those things that I mentioned, because those are the things that like my best solution is the drugs and alcohol. And so when I end up in those spaces of town, you know, where I know there's, there's a lot of, you know, there's open air drug markets, there's use happening in the openness. Again, I think it's um, part of it is is not forgetting where I come from with things, but also there's you know some extending that that idea of that loving kindness to the people that are still out there. And again, it's another one of those opportunities to really just you know play the tape back through. Is um, I'm not convinced by any means that there's anything that drugs and alcohol can offer me at this point in my life that I can't do for myself for those brief periods of time. You know, it's, um, and it's difficult, you know, is it's, um, it's, I think now there's, there's a little bit, it's, you know, the temptation with the recovery work, the edge is off a little bit more realizing that it's, you know, it's an even more serious game of Russian roulette. Like I got away with all kinds of crap. I survived all kinds of horrific episodes in my drug use. And right now it's like, um, having this time away from, drugs and alcohol that I have. Um, it's, you know, seeing the seriousness of it in a light that I never had before because of, you know, the fentanyl poisoning and things like that is it's, you know, I'm like, man, some of the things that I used to engage, you know, some of the, the things that I used to use that shouldn't have opiates in them have opiates in them now, you know, like fentanyl, I'm like, I don't understand any of it. And so, you know, that kind of thing, there's, there's actually a healthy fear of drugs, not in this, like that they'll ruin my life. There's actually a healthy fear of drugs that I never, never had ever before in my life. Like, man, it's actually pretty damn scary these days, like what's going on out there. And so not having to be in bondage to drugs and alcohol anymore and be at the mercy of like not caring what's in my dope is, um, that's a, that's a freedom like no other right now. Mm, Yeah, for sure. JR said, uh, Joe, I want to buy two autograph books 
one for the podcast giveaway and one for my personal library. Can I PayPal you? <laughs> yes, I've, you know what I've got? Um, I've got, I've only got paperbacks available right now at my home. I've got, but I, I could definitely, I'll connect with you after this and, um, and I'll get an address and I, and if paperbacks are cool, cause I can get those, it'll take me a while to get some, to get some hard covers in, but I can, I'd be happy to do those paperbacks, get them out. Nice. Autographed, autographed and everything. He said paperbacks work. Nice. Okay, cool, cool. Karen said, please don't fear your next chapter. You are the author of your personal story. Mm. I think that's, you know, that's, that's right there. That's, that's something that I honestly experience today as I'm truly writing the future. Like there's, there's a lot that's out of my, out of my hands, but I actually have, I have some say and some skin in the game as to what happens in my life these days. I actually just, uh, I just enrolled in school for the first time and in my life, like post-secondary education and uh, you know, I want to go for, for social work. And, and it's interesting as about writing, you know, the next chapters is, my, I'm so rooted in these experiences I had from when I was 17, 18 years old and I was getting ready to go to community college in Massachusetts that I have this fear of like, you know, doing the schoolwork and like not not a healthy sense of fear when I came to it starting school last week, but it was rooted in all these old experiences that I had. And I'm actually at a place now where um, actually writing a new chapter that's absent of these old fears of these old um, barriers to my success and those kind of things that I used to experience. And um, I, I yeah, really appreciate seeing that. Um, I'm sorry, I forgot who put it in the chat, but super, super helpful. I think it's, it's all about kind of the um, accessibility to freedom and liberation that comes is, you know, there is, there's actually a, I think creativity is probably one of the most wonderful things that I found in recovery. Um, I was creative in my addiction. I was creative in my ability to get drugs and alcohol, but not a healthy sense of being creative. And now the things that I get to do with that creativity are not rooted in selfishness and self-centeredness. They're rooted in, you know, in a, in a desire to help other people, you know. And um, that's just, that's a total 180 from the kind of the way that I live for, you know, 16 years. So, yeah, things things are a lot better. Yeah, for sure, man. Um, let's see. It looks like JR is wanting to do a giveaway. Um, he's got a book. We are we doing the Victoria's Voice book, JR, or which one? What are we What are we wanting to do here? I'm waiting on him to send me a message back. To see well, I got I got one of those that, that mobilize Victoria's Voice. Yeah, I've got that on my shelf. Nice. Yeah, I, I haven't gotten a chance to read that one yet, but it looks like. I think uh, I think that's what we're doing tonight. So, um, oh, we got some more comments coming in. Turn your pain into power, your lessons into blessings. Nice. Um, we're gonna do. Uh, let's do a number between one and twenty-five, and whoever gets the number gets the book. Oh, and it looks like he's also wanting to do a copy of your book as well, Joe. So we'll do we'll do the Victoria's Voice first, and then we'll do a giveaway for a copy of Joe's book second. Mm. 
got Ian with 23. Nope, not quite. Not there, man. It's not it. Fifteen, ten, eight, twenty-seven. It's one through twenty-five, Karen. So you're a little, little over there. <laughs> Four, three. No, you guys are going in the wrong direction. Carrie was pretty close a second ago. 714. <laughs> no, not 714. Not seven. No. 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 Two. No. 16. Nope. Is there anything left? <laughs> There's at least one number left because they haven't got the number. They haven't got the number yet. No, not 25, Karen. Let me make sure I didn't miss it. Let me scroll back up here. Do, 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 do. No, they haven't got it yet. Oh, Ian's real close. Oh, now he's going the wrong way. Ian's just going down one at a time. <laughs> get a winner in there somewhere. Right? Man, they're hit. They're hitting all around it. There's there's one number you guys are missing, and it's the it's the right number. Now Ian's going. Now Ian and Karen are going the wrong way. They're going up. The smaller. It's a smaller number. Sixteen. All right, Ian's getting closer. All right, Ian got it. The number was twelve. Nice. Oh, so Ian, go. you got the copy of Victoria's Voice. And then it looks like Jr. He said earlier he's going to buy two copies, so one for himself, and then he's wanting to do a giveaway of a copy of Joe's book. Um. So we'll do. What's another what's another game we can do to, to give away another book? You got any ideas, Joe? Oh man. Um no. I'll be just totally honest. I'm fresh out of ideas <laughs> at the moment. <laughs> Especially when I'm on the spot, man. I'm not gonna not gonna be helpful in producing a game. <laughs> I'm sorry. I feel you. I feel you, man. I, I have like no ideas whatsoever. We could do another another uh number. Um Let me pick like 20, 26 through 50. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, we'll do 26 through 50 for Joe's book. <laughs> There's my contribution. <laughs> that works. So 26 through 50. You're thinking of the number though, right? I'm thinking of a number. Okay. <laughs> I've got it. I got it locked in. Ian's going for both of them. He's trying to get them both, man. Oh, 
Oh, he's starting at the top and he's working his way down. <laughs> uh, Karen's not too far off. Not, it's not 27, Karen. Not. Oh, Karen got it, 42. All right. All right, Karen. So, Karen, you got a copy of Joe's book. Oh, and there's Ian saying 42. He was a second too late, man. All right, Karen. So, I guess get with us after the show or send a message to to the recovery revolution page and jr will get all that figured out so we got ian ian won tonight and so did karen very very nice guys good stuff yeah all right guys are there any other questions for either me or joe or any anything you guys want to want to know All right. Well, as a reminder, in case you guys weren't here at the beginning of the show, uh, this past weekend, I started uploading the audio only version of this live event of the live show uh, as a podcast. So in case we go through another social media blackout like we experienced today, you can still get the you can still get the uh, the, the show, just not without the visuals, just the audio version. Um Oh, here's a question. Uh, how long did it take you to write your book? Um, I'm going to say, I think I started, let me see, January 2018, I started writing and published it in December, 20, about two years. Yeah, but I was, I was going at it pretty hard. I was giving it, for a while there, I was giving it three hours a day while I was, putting the nuts and bolts together and then kind of, you know, got some, got some feedback from some friends and family. And then, um, you know, I was able to kind of pump the brakes a little bit. And then those last few months before I published it, it was, it was getting two or three hours a day again, man. It was, it was pretty exhausting. And it's getting ready to put this guy, I got a lot of material on a second book. And um, it's, it's kind of like reminding me some of the, the exhaustive nature of the process, but um yeah, Karen, happy to, you know, get get this book out and, um, you know, feel free to reach out if there's questions, if there's anything that doesn't get answered in there. And um, appreciate everybody, everybody tuning in tonight. Yeah, consumed you for about eight months. Yeah, it's it's hard to, like, that momentum gets going. It's, and it was difficult. I was like, I'm creating something. I'm going to be an author. I'm writing my story. And it's interesting is, um, I will say is, I'd encourage anybody to to write their story, even if you don't publish it. I think I, I found so much therapeutic value. I found a voice for my recovery in, in, in a way that like I can't describe here. It's something that I found myself early on trying to tailor the book to what I thought people wanted to read. And in that, as I felt pretty, I felt like it lacked authenticity. Like I was trying to convey a voice that it wasn't really me. 
And as I found the therapeutic value of writing, <clears throat> I was like, I can add some components of comedy and those things, but I changed my relationship to my past too. And that is I, I was able to do a lot of forgiveness work for myself as well as other people, but also um, really trying to see my sister's on here. Hey, Don. Awesome. Glad you tuned in. Yeah. Yeah. You're in, you're in the book too. It's been a big part of my life, big support of my recovery. Um, it's, <clears throat> I think the value of, of not like it's rewriting the experiences, but being able to see them in a way that it showed the humanity of the other people in my life, the things that I dealt with, the difficulty with my mom, the things that I experienced in my family allowed me to see it through a lens that shed the resentment and these other things that I hear about so consistently themed around recovery that really helped me open my heart. And in that is, I think I, I opened my awareness about, you know, recovery too in that is because I was like, man, I really want this to be accessible for people in one way, shape or form. And you know, I found different things about it in that process. It's um, yeah, there's so much value, I think, in that writing piece. Good stuff, man. Uh, I think I forgot to mention, if you guys are looking for the podcast version of this show, it's called Recovery Revolution Live. I didn't, I don't think I said the name of, of the show. So there's that little, little piece that might help you because there's another podcast <laughs> called Recovery Revolution. So there's two different recovery shows that are, have similar names. That's, that's right. Yeah. I forgot about that. I, I punched it in the other day and I noticed that and I was like, wait, I think I know that guy too. <laughs> like. <laughs> Yeah, there's there's definitely a pretty tight knit community of different uh, recovery podcast people, and I'll, I'll see different posts. And I'm like, wait, that person looks familiar. I'm like, oh, they have, oh, I know who they are. Yep. Man, people pumping out, pumping out hope and sharing experiences. That's what's up, though. Yeah, for sure, for sure, man. Awesome. Well, if there aren't any other questions, I guess we could uh, we could wrap it up. And and while we're plugging our stuff, I also have another podcast called recovery survey and it's a it's little bite size uh little pieces of recovery little little uh messages of of overcoming and triumph and and strength and hope and uh you know like 30 minute episodes so if you guys are looking for more recovery content be sure to check that podcast out be sure to check out joe's book uh, i'm sure we're going to be posting that all over the facebook page after this episode goes out so uh be sure to check that out yeah Awesome. Thanks for being on tonight, Joe. It was, it was great having you on here. Yeah. Pleasure to be here too. Really, really grateful for this opportunity. Uh, thank you, Brett. Thanks, JR. And then everybody for tuning in. I'm glad to see I had some, some family on here. And I'm my, my sister, Dom, my cousin, Cheryl, and, uh, and everybody else I contributed in the comments. Really, really appreciate the support. This is what makes this a reality for everybody. And so I appreciate everybody turning out, even though many of you didn't know me, like this is what it's all about. Love y'all. Take care. <laughs>